0: All right, we're going to continue in our series in the book of John, and so if you want to go and grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 5. If you don't know me, my name is Dustin, I'm one of the pastors here at Huntington Community Church, and I am really, really loving this series in John, hope you are too, I'm just excited to continue. It's sort of a continuation of what happened last week, where Jesus continues to teach us um, about the reality of God. And so if you're a note-taker and you need titles, title of this sermon is Ultimate Realities. Ultimate Realities. And what I'm trying to get at when I say ultimate realities is this, that there is beauty in simple orthodoxy. There's beauty in simple orthodoxy. Beauty meaning that there is something truly stunning and admirable when you see truth for what it is. Simple meaning understandable. doesn't mean shallow, it just means simple, it's plain. And orthodoxy meaning biblical doctrine. And so the idea that we can get up here and claim that we know ultimate reality, that we know orthodoxy, must mean that we believe, as Christians, if you're a Christian, you believe this, that we have knowable, absolute truth. So the beauty of simple orthodoxy, it's not saying that we live shallow lives. It just means that we are free as people who follow Jesus, to trust God at his word, and enjoy the life of following and obeying Jesus. And as I was studying for this this week, I came across this quote that I am going to paraphrase and subsequently probably butcher, Um, so I'll take you to it later if you want me to say it better. But it's talking about this idea of revival and people actually coming alive to all that God is for them in Christ And this guy says that this will happen when, in his words, some fool will pick up a Bible and will realize it's not a book to be explained, it's a book to be believed and obeyed. Now, that does not mean that it's not important to know doctrine and to explain. Obviously, I'm going to do some explaining this morning. I'm going to just read it and say, go on your way. But there's something powerful there that as Christians with the Holy Spirit inside of us, we are free to pick up our Bibles, to believe it, to obey it. We have actual, absolute truth. This is why I like the phrase ultimate realities, because as humans, we need ultimate reality to orient ourselves to live our lives as they're meant to be lived. Thankfully, God is that ultimate reality, and his word shows us the way. And I want to read two verses in the book of John before we get to John 5, and I think Adam may have even has read this every time in the beginning. Of a sermon on John, but I think it's important that we remember that John does not leave us guessing as to what the point of this book is, the point of these stories, the point of these miracles, the point of what God has intended for us to see in this book. And it comes in John 20, verse 30 through 31, says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So notice the signs, these specific miracles that John records for us are written so that we believe, so that by the Spirit, using his word, this book is meant for all of us to believe. And so that's the main application of every sermon. Belief. Believe. So what are we supposed to believe based on the book of John? First thing is that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus of Nazareth actually was the chosen one who would come and die for the sins of God's people and rise again to secure our relationship with God forever, starting when we believe. That this Jesus is the Son of God. That the man Jesus was and is God. He is truly God and truly man. And this is one of the mind-blowing truths in simple orthodoxy that we are set free to believe. Theologians call that idea of Jesus being truly God and truly man the hypostatic union. And it's a doctrine worth dying for. And you'll see, this is really one of the main reasons in John 5 as to what got Jesus in trouble. It's got him in trouble with the religious leaders of his day in our passage this morning. So believing these things, it says by believing you may have life in his name. By believing in Jesus, not just merely intellectually agreeing that he exists. Demons do that. And not just merely doing what he says. Moral agnostics can do some of that. They can't love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, but they can change their behavior. But by trusting in him. He is Lord, he is Savior, and we fully rely on him for salvation. In a later chapter, in a later sermon in chapter 10, we'll learn that the life that Jesus gives through belief is abundant. Even later chapter in 17, we'll learn that the eternal life that Jesus gives is knowing God. It's abundant life, and he literally equates eternal life to knowing God. That's what I ask you this morning. Don't you want that? Take stock of your life, especially those of you who claim to follow Jesus, and ask, is it abundant, and is it a life marked by actually knowing the God of this book? It only comes through surrendered trust. It does not come through intellectually agreeing. It does not come through changing your behavior. It comes through surrendered trust. And as we continue to see more and more miracles and more and more teaching, like we'll see this morning, we're going to see how Jesus connects these things to himself. And we'll see that believing in Jesus is to be satisfied by him and surrendering your life to him in obedience to his word, all by the power of his grace. It's his work alone and not ours. By the power of the Spirit, we can be born again, a new person that is actually alive, no longer dead in separation from God. All of this accomplished by the true and final sign of his death and resurrection. That's the good news. It's what we're called to believe all over again this morning. And so, to conclude this long introduction, we can conclude that the point of these miracles and these teachings is for all of us to leave here believing. Either for the first time, maybe you walked in here dead, you need to believe for the first time, or to believe all over again as we repent from where our lives fall short of our confession in Jesus. These sermons are designed for you to have life. Abundant life, eternal life, a life of knowing god so the context from our last sermon if you remember remember jesus was healing on the sabbath and just one quick point a point that adam made of application that really messed me up that i hope we didn't ignore as a church just been praying that we do become a church that has eyes for invisible people remember that point of just realizing that out of all the crowds jesus is able to see this hurting person by the pool pray that we are like that but what's clear is the jews were blind They didn't like that Jesus did that because he made it clear that the reason he was working was because his father was working, and they understood exactly what that meant. Look at verse 18, right before our passage this morning. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That is what was getting him really put on their hit list. And so this passage this morning is a continuation of that teaching that made the religious leaders of Jesus' day want to kill him. And so what I'm asking for us this morning is that we would let Jesus show us what God is really like and let him show us how good he really is, even beyond our own boxes, just like he did the Pharisees. Even believers need reminded because our sin can blind us to the beauty of God. Listen, part of why you are continually stuck in sin is because you are blind to the beauty of the gospel. When you see it for what it really is, and we need the Spirit by His Word to show us that is where the power comes to say no to sin. We need reminded of things we already believe. And Jesus, as we're going to see, is letting us in on ultimate realities that we need to truly believe and truly live out as a church in front of a watching world. The things we read today should change our thoughts, our desires, and our actions. Verse 19, let's get into it. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does... This is weighty stuff. This is simple and deep, and by the power of the Spirit, we are free to live in light of this. Something that is happening here, and it's going to continue to happen through the book of John, is we are going to be let in on the reality of the doctrine of the Trinity. And so you're not going to find the word Trinity in your Bibles, but the teaching is clearly there, that God is one God. He's one in essence and in nature, but he is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, God has always existed as one God in three distinct persons. And in this passage, Jesus is letting us into more light on the relationship between the Father and the Son. This is beautiful. It is glorious if you will let it overwhelm your heart and mind this morning. It's so easy to let this become cold, distant theology, but in fact, it is an ultimate reality of the universe. This is who God is. And there's a lot to say on why that is glorious, but we have to stay in. John 5, 19 through 23. So before I show a few of the things here, I, what I believe God is saying in these verses, we have to do a little bit of systematic theology framing here. And funny enough, the guy who I read this by was a guy named John Frame. And so Mr. Frame is going to frame this for us um, in systematic theology terms. Because I wanted help understanding this idea. Because I'll be honest, when I first read this, I'm just like, okay, Father and the Son are one. It's like, what else do you say? Right? Like, I don't have access into the inner workings of how God works as one in three. But I love this that I discovered as I was reading um, my systematic theology book in preparation for this. Um, And please, I'm begging you, don't let this become boring because if we lose the doctrine of the Trinity, we lose the God of the Bible. This is crucial. We want this to not only be in our minds, but in our hearts on fire so that it changes the way that we relate to God and relate to other people. So in my study of this, I learned the phrase, mutual glorification. Mutual glorification of the persons of the Trinity. And basically, when we see persons of the Trinity, like we see in John 5, doing distinct roles in the world, and especially when those roles defer to one another, we can call that mutual glorification. And in some way, that reality is designed to help us believe it is meant to help us worship. There is glory to behold when we see how the Father and the Son work in the world as the one true God. The way the persons of the Trinity love one another in glorious unity does in fact show us that what we are invited into when we become one in Christ and one with each other in Christ. It's mutual glorification happening in John 5. And so with that pillar in place, let's see what ultimate realities Jesus is showing us about God. This is beautiful if we'll see it. So, verse 19 shows us ultimate reality number one. Ultimate reality number one is this. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, because the Son does whatever the Father does. Ultimate reality number one, that we need to live in light of. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, because the Son does whatever the Father does. You see that right in verse 19. The Son can't do anything on his own accord because he is one with the Father. That's the plain reason. What we see here, though, is that God the Son in Jesus is doing what the Father does in the world. Some scholars study notes say that this could mean that Jesus had the unique ability to see God's, God the Father's providential hand in all of the seemingly ordinary events of everyday life. Um, do you realize that, that that is true? even if we can't see it. I'm assuming most of us don't get direct revelation from God telling us the exact meaning of every ordinary moment of our entire lives. But an ultimate reality is that God the Father's providential hand is in fact in all of the seemingly ordinary details of your life. And I think one way to live in light of this ultimate reality is that we should start expecting this to be true. We should expect that God is working, and that the purpose He has for us in every situation is that we have good works to do and good news to share. Can you imagine if a church of this size lived like that every day in the office, on Sunday mornings, around our tables, Wednesday night, summer, fill in the blank, whatever it is, if we assumed that God is working because He is in us by His Spirit, and wherever His providential hand has guided us, The point is to glorify him by loving him and loving the person in front of us. Jesus lived like that. Ephesians 2.10, Paul writes this. I think he gets at this reality too. This is right after Paul just goes nuts explaining the gospel, saying that we were dead in our sins. We've been raised to life by the mercy of God. And then we see in verse 10 one of the reasons that he did that to you. So if you're a Christian, you've been born again and made alive, one of the reasons is this in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus, why? For good works. What about those good works? Which God prepared beforehand. Why did he do that? That we should walk in them. God has worked before us. Jesus worked with the Father and in him, and we can too. What we can know for sure, though, is that Jesus Christ showed us what God is like in the way that he worked. And it is nothing like what man would have put together. Hebrews 1.3, just the first part of it, just a quick cross-reference here to show this point. It's talking about Jesus here. It says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So when we see Jesus in the Gospels, we are seeing what God is like. The Pharisees had no categories for the Son of God to be the one that would call out their hypocrisy and spend his time with the poor outcasts of their day. Think about the people As Jesus is doing work, kingdom work, during his time on earth that we get to see in the Bible, think about the people that Jesus spent his time with. Think about the people that he loved. If you dwell on this long enough, I pray by faith you will experience humiliating honor or honorable humiliation. Humbled and humiliated because you understand that if you are someone that has believed in Jesus... You understand that apart from the work of God in your life, you would still be in your sins and in your shame. God coming to you in the Spirit and making you be born again had nothing to do with your loveliness or your own goodness. We didn't decide it was the right thing to do. Our eyes were open to the glory of God in the gospel. That is humiliating in the best way. Jesus says that the kingdom belongs to people who are poor in spirit, belongs to people who realize their spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God. That is glorious humiliation for the believer. But it's not just humiliation. It is honor. Honored because by his grace, you are made alive and in relationship with God forever. Though that is our state apart from God, by his grace, he brings us to be one in Christ. Jesus shows us that as he's working, he shows us a God that is full of grace and mercy toward the ones who understand they could never deserve it. It's a glorious thing to think about. When we watch Jesus do work in this book, we get to see what God is like. Remember last week's sermon, God is like one who will go to that poor outcast and heal. That's the work our God does. We don't have to wonder what he's like, we get to see it. And if you're a Christian, you are free to believe and enjoy this. Ultimate reality number two this is found in verse 20. One of the reasons that the Son does what the Father does is because the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He is doing in the world. Straight from verse 20. Ultimate reality number two. One of the reasons that the Son does what the Father does is because the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He is doing in the world. Now, this is deep, but it's beautiful. We learn that our God is a God whose persons love each other. (laughs) This is not some mechanical, distant, cold, calculated business arrangement. Think about this. An ultimate reality in the world is love. God is a happy God of love. Let me show you two verses from some epistles to kind of put some meat around this point. 1 Timothy 1.11, Paul is writing has a little adjective here about God that shows us something. He writes, "...in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." And the blessed word there means happy. 1 John 4, my favorite verses, says, "...anyone who does not love does not know God." Why? Because God is love. And when we get invited into this relationship through the power of his spirit as he awakens our eyes to see the beauty of the gospel, we are loved by this God. Understand your salvation was an act of love. And we already know that these works that Jesus was shown by the Father and was doing were powerful works of grace toward people. He literally healed people who had never walked. He had opened blind eyes. But ultimately, by his love, in his grace, by his power, he makes people born again. My goodness, if we could see it, when we get to watch these miracles, the power on display, understand what power is on display when you are born again. This is the power of the gospel, that God awakens us to be lovers of himself as he loves us in Christ. We are free to love God because he first loved us. And it's a powerful love. Um, Got this observation from a text message from Jay Lacani on April 9th at 7.45 a.m. Not sure why I was thinking about this at 7.45 a.m., but I um, was really helped by this. He made just a simple observation that whenever we see storms or hurricanes or these powerful things in nature, those do show us echoes of the power of God. But there is one thing, That in the Bible, God definitively calls the power of God. Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. God working in love, in power, showing us this on display. The gospel is power. So before we move on to ultimate reality number three, I want to ask one question that hopefully you saw as you were reading verse 20. The question is, why will God continue to show Jesus what he is doing? The answer is found right there. And greater works than these will he show him. Why? So that you may marvel. One of the main applications of today is that when we see this in the word, we would be people who marvel. And what are these greater works? Scholars think that the raising of the dead in chapter 11, that's the story of Lazarus, is one of the big, great works being discussed here. Can't wait for that sermon. But even this shows us the greatest work in Jesus' death and resurrection. This is what God is doing in the world through Jesus. He is leading to the cross and his rising again for salvation of those who will believe. He is working redemption. And clearly, as Christians, we are meant to marvel at this. So I'm begging you, will you let this wake you up from the fog of life? I know how easy it can become to be distracted or maybe just shackled by your own sin, just distracted by the busyness of whatever you are into, but this is true. God is showing off his power in the gospel and his salvation for all who believe. God came to the world and didn't crush it. He did everything necessary to save us and we should marvel. Ultimate reality number three. This is found in verse 21. The son has the power to raise the dead and give life to whoever he wants, just like the father. Now, obviously, this is another statement of Jesus claiming to be God. Remember, this is why the Jews wanted him dead. It would be clear to them and hopefully to us that only God has the power to raise the dead and give life. Now, this can be referring here, verse 21, to Jesus raising the dead physically. But the rest of this chapter will make clear that life and resurrection are much more than breathing lungs and a beating heart. It is helpful to see life as Jesus brings it, um, as Jesus, that he brings the eternal life of being born again and the fact that we will be raised after our physical death to be with Jesus forever. So that's one thing. When you're seeing resurrection and life, that is one of the things they are talking about there. Eternal life of being spiritually born again, but also one day you really will live Forever. These are true things that should anchor us in. Okay, ultimate reality number four. This is verses 22 and 23. The Father has given all judgment to the Son, why? So that all people will honor God. So we see that every person, all of us in this room, all the people that we know, will give an account before the Son of God. This is even more beautiful when you see this in light of the greatest work of Jesus dying and rising again. Though all judgment has been given to God the Son and will be executed when he comes a second time, Jesus takes the judgment of God for sin on himself at the cross. Romans 3.26 shows us um, a beautiful way of this. Romans 3.26 says, It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, because he punishes sin, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. A couple more verses to show more of this ultimate reality. Hebrews nine twenty seven through 28 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Pray that that's us. Notice both of these actions here. Offered to bear sins and appearing a second time for salvation for those who believe, which will be true life forever. And the judgment for those who don't believe is eternal separation from God. It's a reality we have to reckon with. The proper response to this reality that Jesus has all judgment is to honor him. And to honor him is to believe in him to believe that he took your judgment and rose again to secure honor for you in a relationship with God forever. That's ultimate reality number four. The last ultimate reality for us this morning. Number five. The resurrection is both awesome and terrifying. The resurrection is both awesome and terrifying. What we're going to see in these final verses, 24 through 29, of our passage is the reality of the resurrection It is awesome because it is eternal life. makes eternal life possible for us. It's been purchased for us by the blood of Jesus. And it's terrifying because it is only for those who believe. So, let's break this down, 24 through 29, to show us the ultimate reality of the resurrection being awesome and terrifying. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, believes him who has sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So we see here another truly, truly, I say to you, meaning, listen to this. Whoever, please notice, they call for whoever will come, hears his word, meaning it must be spoken, and believes him who sent me, that is the Father, has eternal life. Notice the present tense here. Listen, eternal life does not start when you die and go to heaven. It starts the moment you believe. It starts the moment the old you dies and the new you comes to life in Christ. A little tiny holy baby in the faith. All right? So in 2011, when the Lord opened my eyes, see the glory of the gospel, that means I am around 11, a little over 11 years old right now. It's 2022, yeah. A little over 11 years old. In a very real sense, Dustin has died. But we're made new in his grace. That's eternal life. And remember, that's being satisfied in God. That's knowing God. That is knowing him intimately. That is what we are talking about. Starts the moment you believe. Freedom from sin, the ability to say no to the worst thing that we do every day, fruit of the Spirit, true and lasting joy no matter what, actual peace in the chaos of life, the Spirit to know him through the Word, the desire and ability to obey the commands of God, which are for your joy and how life is supposed to go, courage to be lights in the world, the ability and desire to kill sin and repent, the strength to be a witness at work, the grace to reject consumerism and leisure as the ultimate goal of each of our days, peace in the midst of the worst things that life has to offer. All of that possible right now through belief in him. It's been purchased for you. And for those of us who have lost our passion for this, you are not too far gone. He has promised on His word that He will complete the good work in you. This is your invitation back. I think so often as Christians, when we hear the gospel, especially in a season where sin is overwhelming, or relational strife, or it feels like we are so distant from God, it is so easy to hear the gospel preached and think, I know I believe that, but it'll never work again. It's an invitation back. Do not let the shackles of sin and shame and suffering and weakness keep you from him, even this morning. This church is not a performance. It's not an entertaining show that we can hear this, be excited, and leave. This is an invitation to actual life. He is calling you to believe the gospel. If you're a Christian, he is calling you to believe what you already believe. He's calling you back into the experience of love and joy in God. He's reminding you that you have eternal life in him. That's good. But how in the world can we say that? It doesn't matter if I yell about it and convince you in a motivational way. What matters is if it's actual ultimate reality and the reason we can say that is because the Bible says it literally says that those who believe will not come into judgment. Clearly, this is referring to the condemning judgment that is just and right for every person in the world because of sin. Every person born dead, spiritually dead, but if you have been made alive, your sin cannot kill you. Your suffering cannot derail you. Jesus has given you eternal life in him. You have gone from God's separation, death, to God relationship life, and it is there for you. Listen to me. When you sin, it is not who you are anymore. That's the dead you. It's not who you are in Christ. You have been made new. First John 1 John 1.9 points to this reality for us. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Don't skip over that. It is just. It is right for him to do this to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because of the gospel, it is part of God's faithfulness and part of his justice that he will forgive us and cleanse us when we confess. That is too good to be true, but it is actually true. And if you'll live your life in light of it, it'll change everything. 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And in my study of these verses, it became clear that Jesus saying that phrase there, is now here, shows that he is referring to the present tense eternal life available for those who will believe right now. The hour is here because Jesus is here. People who hear his voice will live. The dead will rise to new life in him. Why is this true? Notice the four in the verse, because God has life in himself, which means Jesus doesn't resurrect or give life only. He is life. He is the resurrection. More on that in chapter 14 when we get there. What we see here, though, is beautiful. The Son of God was never created, so he can have life and give life to whom he will, and he gives life to every single person who comes to him for it in faith. The resurrection is awesome, and it's terrifying. Look at verse 27. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Here we get another angle of glory behind the reality of Jesus being the judge. It's because, notice, he is the Son of Man. Now, in your gospel reading, you'll notice this was Jesus' favorite title for himself. And those who knew their Old Testament would have immediately realized the gravity of the claim that Jesus is making here. Their minds and ours should go to Daniel chapter seven. It's a prophetic vision of the end of all time. Daniel gets to see this and writes it down for us. And verse 13, says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, this Jesus is the king of this all kingdom conquering kingdom to end all kingdoms. And that is the kingdom that the poor and the outcast and the sinners are invited into. That is humiliating honor because we are there too. And because he is this king, he will judge every single human being. And then Jesus takes a turn in verse 28. so interesting. We were just told to marvel. And then in 28, he says, do not marvel at this. (laughs) Don't just marvel that he's been been given all authority. Marvel at the fact that this is actually going to happen in real time and space one day. Look, do not marvel at this. 28, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Every single person in the entire history of the world will hear Jesus at the last day and come out of their, t- their tombs to give an account to the Son of Man. Please do not miss the weight of this ultimate reality. Look at what it is for. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What is doing good? Ultimately, believing in Jesus. What is doing evil? Ultimately, rejecting Jesus. Jesus, it does not matter what we say we believe on that day. What matters is who we trust. Here's a reality for us as a church. As people who claim to know Christ, maybe some of you don't know Jesus. All of us need to understand that these truths, these ultimate realities, do not matter if we don't believe them. They matter ultimately. They don't matter for you if you don't believe. All of us need to lay our lives bare before God's word this morning. If these realities are true, and they are, and if we are honest, and I hope we are, then we must consider what belief in Jesus will look like right now. And so I would love to invite us to consider how actually believing these things would change our personal worship, us as a church family, and our mission in the world, But more than that, I want you to let these realities inform the way that you think and talk and live and have people over and what you eat and what you watch and what you do in every aspect of life. These realities change everything. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, the application for you is to repent and believe. Jesus has died for your sins, has rose again to secure relationship for all who come to him by faith. Turn from your sin and trust him fully. He's never turned down anyone who comes to him by faith. So for the rest of us, before we sing, let's go back through these and consider how we will not let another Sunday go by and we don't change anything. Maybe It's just for me. It's so easy for me to hear the sermon, say it was good, and then live the same. Ultimate reality number one. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing, because the son does whatever the father does. So how does this change our personal worship? We should worship and praise God that he is a friend of sinners. In our Bible reading, we should be marveling at the person and work of Jesus and his life in the kingdom. The character of God is stunning to see. He is for us in Christ. As a church, we should consider if our acting as the body of Christ is also participating in what God is doing in the world. Obviously, we don't have the special insight into exactly what God is doing providentially, but we do know everything we need for life and godliness. And so we need to consider our lives as a corporate body in this city and ask if we are showing the world what God is doing in the world. Mission, we should be loving our neighbors. This is best done through sharing the gospel with them and inviting them to respond. Listen, not just making sure they know Christians are cool and socially able. So easy to do that. We consider gospel conversations a conversation in which we admit we're a Christian and they don't leave there hating us. The mission is to share the gospel and invite them to respond. And this is adorned by showing actual concern and opening your heart wide to the needs and cares of the people that God has placed in your life. Ultimate reality number two. One of the reasons that the son does whatever the father is doing is because the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing in the world. How does this change the way we personally worship? We should worship God because he is a happy God. (laughs) That's who he is. He is love, and we get to be in him through Christ. As a church, we should be one. We should be loving. Jesus is going to show us that our love and unity actually shows off the loving unity of God. He's going to teach us that. It's how people will know the things we say are real. It's by the way we love one another. The mission, the love and unity should overflow into lives that are not hidden from the world, but instead are showing the world how good our God is. Ultimate reality number three, the Son has the power to raise the dead and give life to whoever he wants, just like the Father. In our worship, we should praise as people who are actually alive. We are free from sin, we are not dead, and we are loved by God. As a church, we should treat each other as though we are really alive. We should not let our interactions and our postures and our conversations with each other bring death into our lives. Our relationships with each other should be nothing but encouraging and convicting as we let our ministry to each other lead us into more life in Christ. The mission, we should call dead people to life by the power of the proclaimed gospel. We should not fall to the dead idols of the world so that others may see the folly in chasing death. We should understand that the world will hate us for it but those who believe will be raised to life. Our lives will be a stench of death to those who reject Jesus, but life to those in the faith. Uh, Ben, you wanna make your way back up before we get these last two. Ultimate reality number four, the Father has given all judgment to the Son so that all people will honor God. In our worship, we should honor God because he has judged Jesus for our sin in our place. We should have a serious joy in worship because he could crush us, but instead, he loves us. As a church, we should hate our sin and do church discipline faithfully as a means of honoring God. We discipline sin in our midst because it has been forgiven. We want to rightly judge in light of the cross. In our mission, we should understand that every person we meet is already under the judgment of God for their sin unless they believe. Our main call to people now is not wrath coming, but wrath absorbed. Jesus has taken it. In ultimate reality number five, the resurrection is both awesome and terrifying, As worship, we should be in awe as we get ready to sing. As a church, we should live as if we are living forever right now. In the mission, we should tell every single person that we know that Jesus is alive because they will hear his voice and come out of the tomb one day. And we should want it to be for resurrection of life and not the resurrection of judgment. So let's stand and sing now and leave later ready to live in light of true reality. Stand with us.